amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. And welcome to another edition of the Hank Unplugged Podcast. This is going to be a monumental edition of the podcast. We have had some of the most interesting, informative, inspirational people on the planet. And today will be, I guarantee, no exception. I just happened to be talking to Lauren Green, who is the chief religion correspondent for Fox And she was talking about how Hungary is making monumental strides in assisting persecuted Christians around the world. According to the Hungarian foreign minister, Hungary has been instrumental in rebuilding 33 torn down Christian churches in Lebanon alone. And again, that's just one example Today, we're going to be talking about a country with less than 1% of the world's population, a country that has already spent somewhere in the vicinity of $50 million helping persecuted Christians. And I should add that persecuted Christians make up eight out of 10 cases of religious persecution globally. The prime minister of Hungary said this. He said, a whole culture is under organized attack. Our culture, our civilization. Of course, he was talking about Christianity. And he said, this is not only taking place in Africa, not only in the Middle East, but in Europe, the land of the most successful Christian culture. And he went on to say that from a Hungarian perspective, if a nation is not proud of its national identity, or if it does not stick to its historic, cultural, and religious heritage, then that country and that nation will not be strong. Why? Because then that nation will lose its anchor. So today we're going to be talking about Christianity and Christian persecution. We're also going to be talking about a country, a relatively small country, an EU country, that is making a monumental difference worldwide. We might say that this is a country demonstrably salt and light in a lost, 
searching, and very changing world. Over the last few weeks, I've been talking on the Bible Answer Man broadcast about the Beatitudes. And our Lord in the last of the Beatitudes said this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you on account of me. Rejoice, be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I bring that up because I think that the guest on Hank Unplugged today is a person who has an eternal perspective. And because of that, he's making a transcendent difference in the present. His name, Tristan Osbey, and he is the secretary or the state secretary for the Aid of Persecuted Christians, as well as the Hungry Helps Program. He's also the vice president of the Hungarian Christian Democratic People's Party, and he has earned a Ph.D. in geosciences. It'd be interesting to find out how he got from that Ph.D. to what he's doing today. Tristan is the only person with a government title that has the term persecuted Christians in it. And I am delighted to welcome Tristan Osbey to the Hank Unplugged podcast. Welcome, Tristan. Thank you for having me. Thank you for this almost transcendent introduction. Well, I think you deserve it. I've been following you for a while. As I mentioned at the opening, Lauren Green was talking to me about what you're doing. She's obviously a very famous news correspondent. She's the chief religion correspondent for Fox News. She wrote the foreword to my latest book, Truth Matters, Life Matters More. A very famous judge in Canada brought up your name in a conversation recently. So you are definitely on the radar of many people because you have committed yourself to making a difference while there is yet time. And you unabashedly talk about the persecution of Christians. Why is this so important to you? Well, of course, it is very important for me personally. I'm a Hungarian Christian. I'm 42 years old, which means that I lived my first 11 years of my lifetime under communist dictatorship, which we had in Hungary until almost 1990. Of course, I was a small child at that time, but I still have learned what uh, anti-Christian dictatorship is. I still have experienced when uh, your parents uh, tell you that you are not allowed to say in school that you are Christian and you go to the mass, because then you will get uh, bad grades. You are not allowed to talk about your family history. You are not allowed to talk about uh, your ancestors, some of them who had been jailed by the communists. And I experienced that was one of my earliest memories that when you are not allowed to express freely your faith. Also, I'm a politician of the Christian Democratic People's Party that has been already mentioned in the introduction, which means that I belong to that very old and unfortunately weakening political tradition, especially European political tradition, which is creating its own policies and political statement based on the social teachings of the Bible. 
And also I have other personal reasons why I'm personally committed to this cause. I have a distant Armenian heritage, Armenians being the first Christian nation of the world. And ever since when they converted to Christianity, uh, being persecuted for that. And finally, I served in the Holy Land as a Hungarian diplomat to Israel for four years, where among other communities, I also met and developed an empathy for the Christians of the Holy East the Christians who have been living in the cradle of Christianity, not only as a religion, but also as the Christian civilization. So that's about my personal commitment. But uh, I have been appointed to this position by the Prime Minister of Hungary. So preserving Christianity and protecting those people who are persecuted for the Christian faith is a commitment of the Hungarian government. It's a Hungarian government policy, and it's largely supported by the Hungarian people. We have made some uh, research, and uh, more than two-thirds of the Hungarian people think that Christian persecution is a major human rights crisis, and persecuted Christians uh, deserve any support the West and the Christian countries can uh, give them. So I'm only representing the joint commitment to persecuted Christians of pretty much the majority of the Hungarian people. Yeah, maybe you can expand on that a little bit, because you are, as I mentioned in the opening, the only person with a government title that has the term persecuted Christians in it. That's an incredible distinction. But I think through that distinction, you're casting a light for others to walk in. That is part of our mission. Our number one priority is to save lives save lives who are murdered in the world just because they are attending an Easter Mass or other religious service, save lives of Christians who had been suffering genocidal attacks by Daesh or other jihadist terrorist organizations in the Middle East. So that is the number one, to save the lives and also to enable Christian communities to remain in their homeland. So even if they had to flee, after a while, after security is guaranteed for them to return to their ancestral homeland. But of course, Hungary is a small country. We are only 10 million people. We are a new member state of the European Union. We have suffered through the devastation of communist dictatorship and the terrible tragedies of the 20th century. So therefore, we are not the richest, the wealthiest of the European Union member states. So we can do only so much. The Hungary Health Program, which is Hungary's humanitarian program with a special priority to protect persecuted Christians, achieved some results. We were managed to benefit and support more than 100,000 Christian people in the world. On the other hand, surveys and research show that more than 300 million Christian people are discriminated or persecuted for the faith. So even if we save 100,000, that still leaves us more than several hundreds of millions of people, and we are not going to be able to do that alone. And there have been many charity organizations, faith-based organizations, and churches who have been supporting persecuted Christians for decades, but there haven't been any governments until very recently. So indeed, when Hungary, the Hungarian government, decided to set up the first ever governmental unit to aid persecuted Christians, we have done our mission in able to inspire other governments. We are trying to build an international coalition of goodwilling governments of like-minded countries 
who are willing to recognize the fact that in these times Christian persecution is the largest and the most concealed human rights crisis of our time. And we need to recognize Christian persecution, but we also need to provide uh, humanitarian assistance uh, to these people. So, Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. One part is the humanitarian mission, the other part is the diplomatic mission to convince other governments to follow their example. I hope you can give our audience a little sense of Hungary's history as well. It dates back to the early Middle Ages, and I believe it was 1000 AD when King Stephen converted to Christianity. That marked the beginning of the Kingdom of Hungary. Give us a little sense of your country's history. Well, Hungary is a 1,000-year-old Christian nation. And I'm in a very blessed uh, situation that as a Western politician, I'm uh, allowed to say this, that I belong to a Christian nation. We have recently adopted a new constitution in 2011. We needed to adopt a new constitution because the previous one was created under a communist dictatorship when Soviet troops have occupied Hungary. Therefore, we consider that constitution illegitimate. So in 2011, we have adopted a new constitution and it starts with the word God. The first sentence of the Hungarian constitution is God bless the Hungarians. And also in this constitution, we recognize, and this is a quote from the constitution, we recognize the role of Christianity in preserving nationhood. We value the various religious traditions of our country, but we do recognize Christianity in preserving our nationhood. And to understand why it is important and why we have written it in our constitution, you have to see our history. We are a 1,000-year-old country and uh, nation, but we have been always a small country a small nation by the numbers, not by spirit, not by culture, but by the numbers. We are in a very central uh, geostrategical location in the central Eastern Europe. And throughout our history, we have been always stuck between big powers. For example, we have been stuck between the Ottoman Empire and the Christian, then Christian medieval Europe. Because of that, we always suffered terrible uh, losses and our nation has been almost completely wiped off the face of the earth. We have been suffered and occupied by the Mongolians back in the 13th century and then by the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire has put much of Hungary under Ottoman Muslim rule for 160 years. So more than one and a half of centuries that almost wiped off completely the population of Hungary. And we have learned at that time what does political uh, Islam, uh, expansive uh, religious extremist Islam uh, means to us and how it almost destroyed us. We were ruled by the Habsburg Empire. Then we have been uh, occupied by the 
Nazis during the, the World War. And that also ended us on the wrong side of the Second World War. We have lost two-thirds of our territories, which is now outside of Hungary. One-third of Hungarians, therefore, live as ethnic minorities outside of the borders of current Hungary. And then the final uh, great uh, tragedy that my country had to suffer, once again, an occupying power came from the East, that was the anti-Christian communist dictatorship that I already mentioned. So here we are now, we have regained our independence, we have joined the European Union, we have regained our Christian identity, only to find out that the Western part of Europe, and also, unfortunately, the bigger part of the formerly Christian Western civilization, is losing its identity. It's denying its Christian heritage, and whoever, like the Hungarian government and the Hungarian people, are sticking to their Christian values and trying to keep the societies Christian and stay no to illegal mass migration, especially from non-Christian countries like us, we are constantly under labeling, censorship and attacks from the largely liberal mainstream of the Western countries and some other international organizations. So I hope I gave you a historical arch to understand where we are coming from and what our values and principles are. Yeah, it's incredibly helpful. I'm thinking as you were speaking, Tristan, that I was born in the Netherlands. And the Netherlands had a very distinctly Christian identity. They're one of the lands of the Reformation. And yet the Netherlands today has completely abandoned its Christian heritage. You're doing exactly the opposite, and I wonder what it's like for a country that's an EU country to march against the current, to go against the tide, to buck what's happening with the demise of Western civilization. Well, it is a struggle. It is a fight, but it's a good fight. And... Uh, we remain uh, persistent uh, on our, our values. And uh, we suffer constantly attacks, uh, sanctions, and false allegations. But, uh, you know, a person as a politician who are always being uh, criticized and labeled with the nastiest terms, I gain uh, lots of strength from the persecuted Christians. I mean, they are suffering terrorist attacks for expressing their face, and we only have to suffer the labels and the false allegations and the trash talk from, uh, I don't know, from CNN and the liberal major media outlets or, or European Union, Brussels uh, liberals, and then the different George Soros-founded organizations. So that's uh, nothing compared to what our Christian brothers and sisters are suffering as a physical persecution. And also, from time to time, we receive positive feedback and we find friends and allies along the way. For example... Uh, we have found friends and allies with the Polish government and the Polish people. And also we have found uh, many true Christian politicians and, and supporters and people in the U.S. as well. I did a podcast with Richard Legutko, who was a former minister of education in Poland. And he also spoke about the solidarity between Poland and your country, Hungary. But you mentioned the rhetoric that has been levied against your country and its leaders. 
your prime minister, who, by the way, I heard a lot about him just reading Google entries. But then I listened to him. I listened to him in an interview as he spoke and answered questions off the cuff for somewhere in the vicinity of an hour. And I was so taken by his very plain spoken wisdom. But he's been called a racist. He's been said to be using hatred for political profit. But yet he is unabashedly pro-Christian, and that has won him a third consecutive term with two-thirds majority. And I, I remember him saying in one of the interviews that he has the liberty to say what he really thinks because of his winning the elections with a strong majority. But he said if a nation is not proud of its national identity, if a nation doesn't stick to historical, cultural, and religious heritage, then that country will not be strong for very long because then that country will lose its identity. Can you speak to the issue of identity, how important it is for a country to retain or maintain its identity? Well, I would like to point back to my previous answer. I just explained and, and told you about Hungarian history of 1,000 years old of struggle being occupied, being between the big countries. And we observe that the fact that Hungarians still exist as a nation, we owe it against all odds. We still exist. We owe this to preserving our identity, our Christian uh, identity. Truly, the, the identity is the core of the self and the core of the self as a person, individual person, and also as a community. This is where we uh, derive our, our strength, our will to survive. So this is why it is important. This is why we allow this type of radical uh, new uh, secularization, extreme secularization, to deny our cultural roots and heritage. We will lose ourselves. Also, if we let the Christians of the East, the Middle East, the Christians to disappear from the Middle East due to the persecution, then we will not only lose like an interesting and exotic cultural element of the Middle East, we will lose the root of our own identity. And I guarantee you that if there will be no Christians left in the Middle East, the European, the Western Christian identity will cease to exist because we will lose our historical roots. And then we will be a prey of more aggressive ideologies, one of them being extremist liberalism, the other one being extremist Islam. I think what you're saying about the root is so transcendently important. I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit. So you're working in Iraq, for example, restoring that which has been lost as a result of the persecution of Christians there. And you've talked about the fact that there were at one time maybe something around the figure of 1.5 million Christians in Iraq, and now that number has diminished to somewhere around 200,000. So if you lose this identity, you're saying this affects Christianity as a whole, because if you lose the root, it has an effect on the flowering of Christianity, not only in Western civilization, but around the world. Absolutely. 
And we have to overcome an ignorance in the West because uh, I'll give you one example. I've been talking to a relatively high-ranking diplomat of a Western uh, country. I'm not going to name the country because uh, my goal is not to start a diplomatic <laughs> you know, scandal. I just want to explain my point. And I thought about the suffering and the plight of Middle Eastern Christians to this high-ranking uh, Western diplomat. And the answer was very ignorant and very, uh, well, to the level of, uh, of an atrocity to hear such a thing. The answer was that, okay, if Christians are persecuted in the Middle East so much, why did they go there? Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. So I hope you understand the ignorance uh, in that there is this uh, absolutely false sense that Middle Eastern Christians are a product of modern-day evangelization that they are, in fact, the product of, I don't know, Western colonial or imperialistic uh, influence or, you know, cultural uh, colonization. And this is dangerous because it means that the average Western people or even the high-ranking Western leader has no knowledge of the very root of our civilization and identity. And this can cause the end of Western Christianity and civilization if we don't come to our senses. Now, talking about Iraqi Christians, the numbers uh, you cited were right, and these are very uh, dramatic numbers. In 2004, uh, the number of Christians in Iraq were indeed 1.5 million. And uh, by that time, indeed, their number is less than 300,000. So it shrunk uh, to one-fifth of its original size in the course of 16 years. And we are talking about Iraqi Christians who had been there for 2,000 years. So they have survived millennia. And now it is upon us that during the time of our generation, they will completely disappear. Because if they have lost 80% of their community, of their people in the course of a little bit more than a decade, you don't have to be a mathematician or you know, a sorcerer or a politician who wants to make dramatic statements to see that in the course of a few more years, Christianity will completely disappear from Iraq, just as it happened with the historical jury of Iraq. From uh, you know the time of the Old Testament, uh, Jewish communities had been living in Iraq for centuries, and yet in present day, there is one anecdotal Orthodox Jewish uh, man in Baghdad according to the anecdote. And the same thing will happen to Christianity unless the rest of the world, the big powers, finally recognize that we face a human rights crisis, a human rights tragedy of historical proportions here. And I would like to see 
the United Nations, the Human Rights Council, the European Union, and all the big uh, human rights organizations to at least recognize that such a thing as Christian persecution exists. Because where we are now, they are not, uh, wouldn't allow the whole expression term Christian persecution to be used. They are not even putting it on their agenda. Everybody else is more important for them. The persecuted Rohingya, who deserve all the attention, who have suffered genocide, who deserve to be talked about. But yet, uh, how come nobody talks about the 300 million persecuted Christians, not even by recognizing their suffering? So that needs to be changed. And this is something that we are very vocal about in the international arena, diplomatic scenes, but it's a difficult task because, you know, I was once in Washington, D.C. at a religious freedom conference, and I talked about the freedom of religion and belief of Christian people, how it is being taken away and abused in more than 80 countries in the world. And just because of that, I have been labeled on the social media as a Christian supremacist and also a racist, just because of talking about the suffering of more than 300 million people. So this is a very difficult task to change the narrative and at least, you know, introduce Christian persecution in the language of these organizations. It's kind of interesting as you're speaking, I couldn't help but think about the fact that in our country, there are so many evangelicals who are not worried about the persecution of Christians in the Middle East and the Levant because they don't think that these are really Christians to begin with, that these are people that serve sort of a dead orthodoxy, they're liturgical, and they have little sense of history as even Christians. So it's not just the secular world that doesn't have an understanding of the roots of Christianity, but evangelical Christians that don't understand when the church was young, do not understand our Christian heritage, and therefore aren't that concerned about what's happening to Orthodox Christians who are suffering in countries like Iraq. Well, I can also give you another example, because our mission, and then personally, my work, I have received so much support from American uh, evangelicals. So I'm sure that's only a minority who is looking at the Middle Eastern Christians that way. And it is important to address the denominational factor of our work. Personally, I'm a, a Roman Catholic with Armenian Catholic heritage. The Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, uh, he is a Protestant, and we are working together with Orthodox Christian churches and many other denominations in the Middle East and in uh, Africa and working together with evangelical charities. So the whole approach of our program is ecumenical. And there, as a, you know, a faithful Catholic personally, I am with a stronger identity. I'm aware that historically speaking, there has been many debate, even violent conflicts between the different Christian churches and denominations. And, you know, I'm a, quite a stubborn Catholic, so I never shied away from some theological debates back in the time. But then I visited the Middle East, and then I visited Africa, the places where Christians are being murdered. And, you know, I have found a very important conclusion from these visits. When a jihadist murderer comes, he doesn't care 
if a person is Orthodox Christian or Catholic Christian or historical Protestant Christian or evangelical Christian, he will murder the person just because he or she is associating him or herself with Christianity and worships uh, Christ as God. So in the eyes of the murderers, we are all the same and we are all Christians. So that is a wake-up call to the Christians of the world. This is not the time to stress on our theological differences. We have suffering a brotherhood, all Christians in the world, a brotherhood, an economical brotherhood of the blood of martyrdom. So it is our duty to not to fuel conflicts between the different Christian denominations, but to come together and protect those who are being murdered in the name because of their association with Christianity. I want to camp on that point for just a moment, because it has been well said that if Christians do not hang together, we're going to hang separately. And I think the persecution of Christians worldwide and the massive scope, a quarter of a billion Christians are being persecuted, the mass scope of it really leads us to what the Lord said in John chapter 17 when he prayed the Lord's high priestly prayer. And he prayed that we might be one, just as he is in the Father and the Father is in him, so that we might be one, so the world might believe that you sent me. So there is a necessity for unity. Of course, that unity around the essentials of the historic Christian faith. You can't throw away the nut and just keep the shell. We have to be galvanized around the essentials of the Christian faith. But it is important for us to be unified today as Christians. And I am so happy to hear that that is one of your core commitments, that you are committed to the unity of the faith so that we as a unified Christian church can make a difference in the 21st century, just as we are commissioned to do. Yes, it is true. I have to add that we are following the Christian social values in our policies, and that is reflected in the Hungary Helps program, in our humanitarian program. Nevertheless, we observe the so-called healthy secularism. So as a government official, don't have any ambition regarding, you know, religious initiatives. But I hope that the actual humanitarian policy and our program will contribute to this sense of all Christians belonging together and addressing together this threat that is on Christianity and Christian people together as a unity, yes. I was reading somewhere that in just over three years, you've had somewhere in the vicinity of 100,000 beneficiaries. Can you expand on that? Yes, this is the number. Uh, humanitarian programs have a methodology to calculate the number of direct beneficiaries. And the number of direct beneficiaries of our program has exceeded 100,000 last November, meaning that in some sense, more than 100,000 people benefited, for example, financially or from being provided social services or education or other support through our program. That's the number of direct beneficiaries, uh, the indirect beneficiaries, so uh, who has in any sense experienced the beneficial effect of our program should be larger. Our program started in the very beginning of 2017, 
At first, we focused in the Middle East because that was just after the aftermath of the genocide committed by Daesh. So our first target countries and Christian communities for support were Iraq and Syria. We also started many humanitarian aid programs for the Christian refugees who had fled from Iraq and Syria to the neighboring countries such as Jordan and Lebanon. And that was important because the big international aid programs for refugees discriminated against the Christian refugees. So after having lost their homes and everything in their lives, they could only count on the assistance of the local churches. And we came to the help of the local churches so that we together provide healthcare and housing and education and other support to these refugees and so-called IDPs, internally displaced peoples. Meanwhile, we have supported with, uh, well, comparably to the Hungarian budget, quite uh, with uh, some uh, uh, funding, the reconstruction of Christian institutions and settlements and towns in Iraq and Syria. We have reconstructed hospitals, family homes, schools, and something that other Western governments will not do. We also supported the reconstruction of churches and church infrastructure. Some other Western governments will not do that because it's not politically correct for them to support the reconstruction of churches. I have one fine example of what can be achieved this way. And this example leads to northern Iraq, to the Nineveh Plains. Nineveh Plains is, of course, a a biblical region, where there is a small town called Telaskuf. It's near Mosul. Telaskuf has been inhabited by Chaldean Christians for millennia, but it had been occupied and ravaged by Daesh or ISIS in 2014. It was completely occupied, so everyone had to flee. All the Christian families who couldn't flee was murdered on the site. The extremists, the terrorists there, first destroyed the cemetery to erase Christianity from the history of the place. And then they used the church as the target practice target. And after that, it was liberated in 2016, but by that time, more than 900 buildings were damaged and it was completely deserted. And then with one of our first donations, we donated $2 million for the rehabilitation of this town called Telaskuf directly to the Chaldean church in Iraq. And this is important because this is also something Western governments will not do in their international aid they not will donate directly to faith-based organizations on the site or to church institutions. Instead, they provide donation to the big international agencies and multilateral programs. And usually you will not see a cent of the donation to arrive to the minority vulnerable group, to the Christians. But we have worked together with the local church, which is the most trustworthy and efficient way to provide donation. And together we have reconstructed this town And as a result, 1,000 families out of the 1,300 families that had fled have returned. So three quarters, we almost managed to save the whole community, which is remarkable if you compare it with the statistical pair of numbers I just previously quoted, that meanwhile, when we look at all of Iraq's Christianity, it shrunk to one-fifth of its original size, yet with a direct donation to the church, one community could be almost completely saved. 
And you know what is very touching? The priest of this town has visited Hungary and explained to the Hungarians that the people of this town have renamed their town from Telaskuf to Telaskuf Bintel Magyar, which means Telaskuf daughter of Hungary. And this is something very reassuring. This shows hope that all what we do is not in vain. And I'm not saying this necessarily because I want to create a positive image here for Hungary. I want to set this as an example because what I would like to see is next to the town that is now called Daughter of Hungary, I would like to see a son of the United States or nephew of Germany or the grandchildren of the United Nations. So this is something that we could have achieved in the last couple of years. And this is something that we offer for other governments and organizations to follow. But I also have to quote that we started our mission mainly in the Middle East, but in the last couple of years, the genocidal level of Christian persecution has been growing in the sub-Saharan Africa. So only in Nigeria, every year, thousands of Christians are murdered by Boko Haram and Fulani jihadists every year. So now the world has to turn its attention to our suffering Christian brothers and sisters in Africa. This is where we are shifting our focus now. I think the podcast was validated by just that one example that is a powerful example of not not merely cursing darkness or cursing the Christian persecution, but building a lighthouse in the midst of the gathering storm. And I think Hungary is such a great example. You've mentioned a number of times that it is a small country, 10 million people or so. But what your agency has done has caused Hungary itself to grow stronger. And that has permitted your magnificent country to play a more significant role in humanitarian support. And I want you to elaborate on that because what you're doing is ennobling, enriching, empowering your own country. And therefore, as a result of that, it can be an ever more significant force, not only in the EU, but around the world. And I'm thinking about this in perspective to what happens when you're in an airplane. If there is a problem on the airplane, the first thing that happens is the masks come down and you're instructed to put on your mask first before you help other people. So in other words, you need to be strong so you can help other people in their own crises. And I think this is precisely what is happening to Hungary as a nation. It is growing ever more, not only popular, but strong strong in and of itself, and therefore it can provide a strength to other nations as well. Well, I hope that my country can fulfill this mission. And as we are, at least on the governmental level, striving to set an example on how to support Christians and other persecuted people for their faith, because I want to make a, a side note here. Supporting only Christians would not be Christian at all. So while we hold persecuted Christians as a priority for our support program, because by the numbers, the most persecuted religious group in the world, we find it as our moral obligation and Christian duty to support other persecuted faith groups. We work together with 
the persecuted Yazidi religious group in the Middle East. No, so we supported persecuted Muslim communities, the Rohingya uh, refugees who had fled uh, from Myanmar to Bangladesh. So with that uh, side uh, note, instead, uh, indeed, I have this general sense how Hungarian people are taking pride in the Hungary Helps mission. And it also made us better understand on, on who we are. And it provides inspiration and strength for us to not only support and defend Christianity in the humanitarian sense, but also defend and strengthen Christian civilization in the West. So therefore, talking about a little bit about uh, politics, what we see now in Hungary is that we are having the ambition, and this is almost uh, looks like as a fulfilled ambition, to start the modern Christian democratic revival, the Christian democratic political revival. We want to be an example state of how a modern Christian democratic country can be, how we can return to the Christian democratic idea, which was a political idea traditionally in the 20th century uh, Europe. The whole European Union was founded by politicians who were Christian Democrats. And we want to return to that political school. And as it almost has been completely emptied in the last couple decades, we want to reinforce its original ideology. And just to explain to the American audience, Christian democracy is the politics that represents the social teachings of the Bible. It not completely relates, but almost it can be equated to what is usually called in the United States as Judeo-Christian values. So we are going to represent in our policies human dignity from the biblical sense. We base our policies on the beliefs that human was created in the mirror image of God, therefore its dignity should be protected. We want to reintroduce a traditional family idea of family in our policies and also the right and Christian mix of self-sustaining but uh, general solidarity. So this is a basic uh, international political movement that the Orban government has started and we would not be able to do this uh, successfully if we didn't have this experience of strengthening our own Christian identity by making this connection with the martyr church. You have been criticized widely for your policies on migration, as has been Prime Minister Orban. I want you to talk about the root of the problem. How do you eliminate the processes that trigger migration in the first place? And this is a very significant issue because we're facing illegal migration in the United States. It's a huge worldwide problem. And you have set down a template for how this problem should be addressed. You're saying that you have to go to the root of the problem, that people really want to embrace their own culture to begin with, and therefore, if you go to the root of the problem, you allow people to stay in their own territories by helping those territories, their own lands, their own countries, their own culture, their own identities, and therefore, you solidify that rather than exporting trouble to other places around the world. Indeed, our principle is that a right way 
to support people in distress, in suffering, in the humanitarian crisis regions is to take the help where the problem is, not to import the crisis and the problem to where there is none. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. By uh, organizing mass migration. Illegal mass migration is harmful to all the parties involved. The host countries, the receiving countries... They will import all the social tensions and the security risk associated with illegal mass migration. The source regions of migration will lose their youth because usually it's the young people who go on on the migrations. They will lose their youth, the young people who would be able to reconstruct the country after, for example, an armed uh, conflict. And also the migrants themselves, you know, they will be lured away based on lies, lies of the traffickers and the migration-promoting organizations, and they will suffer terrible disappointments when they will face the realities. So migration is harmful. Some organizations, even governments, who promote migration, they try to portray that as the humanitarian response, or the only morally right response. We think it's the opposite. Who promotes illegal mass migration commits a crime against humanity and against their own people and also against the people they are claiming to try to help. Therefore, the Hungarian government introduced fair, reasonable, but strict measures against the illegal migration that has hit the Hungarian uh, southern border in 2014, which is also the southern border of the European Union's free movement zone. And at the same time, that is when we started the Hungary Helps program to eliminate or at least try to eliminate the source regions why people choose to migrate, to eliminate extreme poverty and conflicts and other humanitarian crises in the source regions. Now, I think and I hope that the audience is convinced that this is the right way to do. But then the whole picture became clear. The reason why the Western European governments promoted mass migration, even invited migrants to their countries, was not because of humanitarian ideas or because of compassion and solidarity, as they claim, but because they needed cheap labor force for the stagnating economies. And therefore, when the Hungarian government stopped illegal migration, I mean, and truly by uh, raising a, a border fence, we did stop it. Before building the fence, the number of illegal border crossings to Hungary were more than 1,000 per day. After that, it was zero. So once we stopped illegal migration, of course, it went against the economic interest of the Western Central uh, European uh, countries and governments. And that's when the whole, uh, I, I don't know, 
whole uh, witch hunting against the Hungarian government started. That's when the fake human rights organizations started to create fake reports about how inhumane the Hungarian government is against the migrants. Yet we are persistent with these policies and we are, we are trying to show the alternative through our humanitarian program, the alternative and how it can be an efficient way to, to treat the root causes of migration. How are you doing with that? I mean, I've seen the pictures of the people trying to get into Hungary and then the captions talking about the racist policies of Hungary to keep people out and so forth. So the images paint a very negative picture towards Hungary. How are you doing in the educational process trying to teach people a proper way of dealing with this worldwide phenomenon that is changing not only Western civilization, but changing the world? Well, we are trying to educate the world by, for example, at this moment, by, by talking to you, having this wonderful opportunity to engage in this interview with you. So we want to express clearly our principles. It is a human right to gain asylum when someone is fleeing for their lives because they are persecuted. And this is something that we observe. If somebody arrives to the Hungarian border and his or her life is in danger, therefore he or she wants to get asylum in Hungary or in the European Union, he or she will go through the application procedure and will be granted asylum. This is our moral obligation. This is our Christian obligation. And this is also based on the Human Rights Conventions of Geneva that we fully observe. But this is something we need to separate refugees fleeing for their lives and illegal economic migration, because the right uh, to life is a human right. But choosing another country where you want to live so you reach higher living standards, that's not a human uh, right. And some countries, those countries whose society were built on migration, they can choose to take in uh, economic migrants. It's their right, and we Hungarians respect that. For example, the US was built based on migration and migrant communities, and it is a successful countries. But Hungary has decided not to invite economic migrants by large numbers, because that's not our culture and our history tells us to keep our community and nation uh, as it is, as a relatively free but homogeneous uh, culture. And therefore, because we see illegal mass migration and economic mass migration as more harmful to our country as not, this is why we choose the policies that we have chosen. Nevertheless, we will let anyone in Hungary who is coming from a neighboring country and fleeing for their lives, not only we will let them in, but my state secretary even uh, supports integration and rehabilitation programs for those people as well. Yeah, so there's a distinction between legal migration and illegal migration. You're all for legal migration, but you're not for illegal migration. I think that's a fair summary of what you said. I want to switch the conversation a little bit to what you're doing in Africa, particularly in places like Nigeria. The focus of the persecution of Christians who have their lives at risk has clearly and markedly shifted to the sub-Saharan 
African region, and we need to be aware of that, and certainly your country is acutely aware of that. Indeed, we are seeing a very alarming tendency in the sub-Saharan Africa in the, in the recent years. We see a tendency of jihadist movements, organizations, first taking foothold and then uh, ruling entire regions in sub-Saharan Africa. And the locations where such genocidal attacks and jihadist activity appears is on the rise, the number of these locations. Every half year, we hear a new region that has been affected by atrocities. Now basically have franchise organizations in sub-Saharan Africa to all the major international jihadist organizations. For Al-Qaeda, for ISIS, we have different provinces and caliphates of ISIS being formed in different regions of Africa. And then we also have local jihadist groups and movements becoming more and more violent. First, we heard about the atrocities and the genocide committed by Boko Haram in the area of Nigeria, Chad, Cameroon, and Niger. Then we heard about Al-Qaeda and other jihadist organizations being present in Western Africa, in Mali, and from Mali spreading to other countries like Burkina Faso. Al-Shabaab, the Somalian terrorist organization ruling a big part of the country, is now making strikes and attacks in neighboring countries, such as terrorist attacks in Kenya. Quite recently, the Central African Caliphate or province of the Islamic State in ISIS had been uh, formed. In the past couple of years, we have been receiving reports of uh, growing Islamist atrocities in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And what is even more striking and tragic, in the last couple of months, while the world was all focusing on the coronavirus pandemic, in complete secrecy, or, or at least having any attention from the world, a new genocide has started in the northern part of Mozambique. A jihadist organization is basically controlling now a full province of northern Mozambique, and which also caused tremendous suffering. We are receiving reports of mass murders by beheading from Mozambique, something that ISIS committed in its peak in Iraq and Syria. We are receiving that now. It's happening now. There are hundreds of thousands of people who had to flee and have no access to basic services. So this is something that we see in Africa. And therefore, we have started to follow the same principles and same humanitarian aid programs, same kind of programs that we have done a few years ago in the Middle East. All of those are starting with a fact-finding mission. My colleagues and I usually go to these crisis zones because we have to see it for our own eyes. What is the situation? And, and we have to ask directly the people what is their greatest need. And uh, something, an interesting experience I would like to share with you that whenever I go to a persecuted Christian community, whenever I go on the field, I usually start with a very simple question, how we can help? How we can help? This is something that I asked the bishop in Nigeria, uh, ordinary uh, people in uh, Eastern Africa, but also Christian leaders in uh, Iraq. And I remember when I asked this question in Nigeria with the bishop, the answer was very striking. The answer was that 
you know, every sort of donation is very much needed and welcome because we have suffered uh, so much and we have lost our institutions and there is humanitarian need. But the plain fact that you came from a faraway country, you took the risk and visited us and that, that after that you are asking us that how you may help us, it worth more than any donation because finally we feel that we are not abandoned. So therefore this bishop in Nigeria told me that they will tell all the congregations that someone came from a country they never heard of before and ask the question how we may help. Because that's a message that they are not alone anymore. They have hope that there are people that are at least caring for their faith and are willing to help. So this is, <laughs> to, to answer your question, this is uh, what we do in Sub-Saharan Africa. We provide humanitarian assistance, rehabilitation, aid, but we are trying to provide something more. We start to show and then extend our solidarity in, in every way possible to these people. I want you to address, if you would be willing to, the difference between peaceful Muslims and Islam in general. Not all religions are created equal. Jesus was very, very clear that the gospel must always advance by word. Islam has demonstrated through word and deed that it is willing to advance by sword. We have 1,400 years of evidence on that count. Again, there are many peaceful Muslims. I remember going to speak in Iran at the University of Tehran in Alama Tibetaba, their sociology university. And I met all kinds of Muslims who were so generous and kind to me during my time in Tehran. But Islam, nonetheless, is not a religion of peace. And what you described going on in sub-Saharan Africa is a demonstration of that. And what's happening now is we have a demographic time bomb that is threatening a Western world that is seemingly blind to the polygamous rush of migrant Muslims who are filling the vacuum left by aging, dying, and aborted Europeans. And while Western civilization continues to coddle, and I think I would put the emphasis on that word coddle, this Islamic time bomb, it is simultaneously cultivating a rash of self-destructive ideals. We're embracing all kinds of ideals that are antithetical to a Christian worldview. Your comment. Well, first of all, there are not only many peaceful Muslim people, but I have met several Muslim people who have risked their lives to protect their Christian compatriots. So there are Muslim people of compassion. And also, I would not want to comment on Islam or the Muslim faith. As a faith group, I always find it important that when I criticize Islamism, I always refer to political Islam, which is not a religion, but a political ideology. It draws inspiration from the theological principles of the Muslim uh, faith, but then it distorts it 
it uh, creates an aggressive political context to it and use it as a justification for its horrible uh, actions. But when it comes to political Islam as the extremist movement, it is true that it has, as every extremist uh, idea, an oversimplified uh, worldview, which makes a distinction of the two different regions in the world. One type of region is where the Sharia law is introduced, the land of Islam, and the other, the Haram land, or the land of the, the infidels, that is unpure, therefore, which has to be occupied by all means, by the sword or by by deceiving the people living there. So, for example, by migration as well. And this is a very aggressive and expansive political ideology. And Europe, specifically within the, the Christian civilization, could only stand up to this aggressive political ideology if the European or the in the other Christian countries, if the Christian cultural identity was strong. But the cultural identity is, is very much weakened. The Western civilization, the Western countries had turned away from their Christian values and identity. Not only they turned away, but they are denying it. And quite recently, they started to attack it. So they are trying to push out any Christian reference from the public discourse. They are trying to limit the freedom of uh, conscience of Christian people in the West by discriminatory laws as well. So, of course, if there is a vacuum of uh, identity, then the new, more powerful and aggressive ideology will simply run over uh, that uh, identity vacuum. So when we are looking at the state of Christian civilization, what we see that in the East, in Asia and in Africa, there is a humanitarian and human rights crisis, but in the West, there is an identity crisis. While in the East, they are blowing up Christian churches, the West, they are closing down the churches or converting them into mosques. In Hungary, we are building new churches. Just uh, in the last 10 years of the Orban government, we have renovated or built more than 1,000 churches in Hungary, trying to serve as an example in that as well. Wow. This is something you alluded to earlier in the conversation, but I thought it might be worth expanding on from your perspective. You faced hard totalitarianism, at least as a child. So you have a sense from a historical standpoint of what hard totalitarianism looks like. Can you talk about soft totalitarianism? How we may not be facing the gulags in places like America and other places in the EU, but we are facing soft totalitarianism, meaning that if we don't submit to the political correctness of the culture, we end up losing our jobs, our livelihoods, or even our voices in culture. Well, uh, thank you for this question. I assume that we are on the same uh, page and probably you wouldn't disagree to say that this sort of extremist liberalism that we experience in the West is actually a totalitarian ideology. It is trying to control the narrative in every segment of a person's life. Not only the political level or the governmental level, but it tries to control how we act in a workplace, what we can tell others, and also it tries to control 
our definition uh, or our views on family, on what is gender or sex, who is a woman and, and who is a man. And if everybody makes a statement or any gesture that is at least a, a tiny bit inconsistent with this dogmatic liberal narrative, he or she is fired, he becomes an outcast, he's censored, as we see in the bigger, uh, well, absolutely liberal social media platforms and so on. Because we have noticed that there is a very hard push from the extremist gender ideology lobby in the European uh, Union before it comes uh, mandatory for the European Union's uh, member state to uh, implement those policies that give a free way to extremist gender ideology, we have amended our constitution. Uh, I will give you another quote. This amendment is about the family. And once again, the quote is from the Hungarian constitution. Hungary shall protect the institution of marriage as the union of a man and a woman established by voluntary decision, and the family as the basis of the survival of the nation. So by stating in our constitution that marriage is between a man and a woman, you wouldn't imagine the political backlash Hungary and the Hungarian government has received because of that. There are already being on the European Union level uh, sanctions trying to be proposed against Hungary just because going against the liberal narrative and the governing party of Hungary had basically been forced to choose to leave its uh, European uh, party uh, family because sticking to the traditional idea of marriage. And this is something what the government experiences, but I don't need to quote, especially to the audience of your podcast, how, for example, in America, Christian people not only received death threats, but has been also put into trial because they refused to serve, for example, a uh, gay marriage uh, ceremony on the grounds of their religious principles. So I'm not sure if this should be called soft totalitarianism anymore. It is becoming more and more oppressive. And when we are looking at the actions that were taken by, for example, the Black Lives Matter activists and also extremist liberal and anarchist activists in the US and in Western Europe, it also becomes more and more uh, violent. So it's a totalitarian uh, idea to its deepest core, and it's a totalitarian system in the making. I love what you said. <laughs> and I've never thought about it as you just said it. Maybe we shouldn't be calling it soft totalitarianism anymore. Perhaps we were using that designation to make the distinction between the gulags and the kind of oppression, but it is anything but soft today. You're talking about the building blocks of civil society, of marriage, of church, of government. They all rest atop the foundation of human life, but none is more significant than marriage. And I am so happy to hear what your country has been doing from the standpoint of its constitution itself. And I wonder how a prime minister like Viktor Orban has been able to stand against the tide or the tyranny of political correctness. How has he been able to do that? I mean, that takes a lot of fortitude, takes a lot of strength. I mean, he's being condemned in all kinds of forums, but he's stuck to his guns. 
Well, there is a very short and simple answer to that question, and that is he's capable of doing so. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Because of the support of the Hungarian people that re-elected the Orban government for the third consecutive time with a super constitutional majority. Without the support of the Hungarian people, this would not be possible to fight this good fight on this level. But the Hungarian people choosing uh, the Orban government again and again and again means that the majority of the Hungarian people stand behind these principles and this idea. I think it's wonderful what you're doing in your country in terms of drawing attention to the plight of persecuted Christians around the world. One of those things I understand is that from time to time, I don't know the details, but you actually take the buildings in Budapest and you illuminate them in red. Is that right? It is true, yes. It is actually uh, the initiative of... uh, international charity organization called Aid for the Church in Need. It's called Red Wednesday. Each November, at one particular day of November, they ask people and institutions in different countries to highlight their buildings, like landmark buildings in red, to commemorate the blood of the Christian martyrs who are being murdered for their faith all around the world. In Hungary, we have joined this initiative not on the the NGO or church level, but on the governmental uh, level. So, yes, this is something that we do in our beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, capital city, uh, Budapest, which I hope uh, all the audience will once uh, uh, visit. Uh, possibly after this podcast, we have highlighted the bridges uh, on the river Danube that separates the two parts of the town and also the four major churches of the four uh, biggest Christian denominations in the country. And while you highlight the plight of Christian persecution, we're talking about the vast majority of persecutions around the world are against Christians. As you've pointed out, and I want to underscore once more, your support for Christians is explicit. I'm using your words, but by no means exclusive. You're concerned about persecution in general, and perhaps you want to elaborate on that once more. Yes. Well, as I said before, supporting only Christians, that's not what uh, Christianity tells us to do. They deserve special attention because there are such large in numbers who are suffering and they have been uh, neglected. Therefore, we are supporting other communities and faith groups as well. And, you know, talking about the practical also consideration, uh, supporting only Christian communities would be also counterproductive because it would further stigmatize the Christian minority communities, you know, that they are the, usually the false, uh, you know, uh, claims that uh, Christians are the agents of the, the West and, and so on, or they are not patriotic. 
you know, so favoritism would be immoral, but also counterproductive for the Christians. And that is also important, I mean, I'm glad you asked. Even where we are supporting the Christian community, we design it that way that all the other communities living together with the Christians are having benefit for that support. So giving you one example, in uh, Syria, we support three Catholic hospitals. Three Catholic hospitals that are in a country in Syria where more than 50% of the healthcare infrastructure had been destroyed because of the war. And in these uh, hospitals, about 80% of the patients who are treated there are Muslim. And a local Syrian church leader who is managing this hospital explained to me what happens. So let's say there is a Muslim uh, patient who is sick, falling sick. Uh, let's call him Muhammad. This Muslim person can be a target or a subject of Islamist radicalization by a radical imam who is inciting him against Christians. Now this person, Muhammad, has only one hospital to go to, to gain cure, to get uh, treatment, and that's the Catholic hospital. So Muhammad goes to the Catholic hospitals and is treated by a doctor who is called Butras. That's Peter in Arabic, it's a Christian name, or treated by a nurse called Eta, which is also a Christian name. A Muslim person who had experienced the solidarity and the compassion of their Christian countrymen will never be ever radicalized hmm. against Christians. And likewise, in Iraq, we support a Christian school for internally displaced refugee children. And there together, Christian and Muslim children from Christian and Muslim families go together. And, and after years of the war, they can finally get education for the children. So this way, we don't only support Christians, but we enable the Christian communities to extend their helping hand to the majority communities or other communities uh, who are living side by side uh, with them. This way, we support peaceful coexistence through our projects. What a glorious illustration. I do think that we should probably start winding up by talking about how religious freedom benefits society and the significance of Christianity on the world. I mean, you're unabashedly Christian. And a lot of people see Christianity in maybe crusader terms, but they don't realize what Christian churches have been responsible for, what Christians have done in the world, their impact on the abolition of slavery their energizing civil rights movements, their charitable works, the fact that Christians were at the forefront of establishing schools and literacy, that Christians were at the forefront of science and modern medicine, that Christians were at the forefront of establishing hospitals and nursing homes and orphanages and soup kitchens and food pantries and halfway houses. So, Christianity has made a vast imprint on the world. And that message needs to continue to be communicated. Absolutely. It needs to be communicated. 
If I can focus a little bit on my work, what I see in the West is something I came up with a new term, or at least uh, I haven't heard it before. That is Christian guilt. You know, you have probably heard of the expression German guilt, meaning that uh, German people, even generations after the Nazi regime, uh, still are uh, guilty for the crimes that has been committed by their ancestors. I heard the term uh, white male uh, guilt. I heard that in the U.S., uh, I mean, white men feeling inherently guilty because of uh, patriarchy and so on. This is something I observed when I was trying to uh, gain allies for our, our missions in the West, that Christian people are sometimes reluctant to come to the aid of persecuted Christians. Western Christians don't want to do that because they feel guilty, because they accepted the usually liberal narrative that Christianity was the ideology behind the colonization and all other terrible atrocities committed in the world. And perhaps some terrible murderers and oppressors uh, used uh, elements of Christian ideology to justify their actions. Of course, those must have been you know, distorted and falsified Christian ideas. But I think the Western Christian people need to be educated about the role and effects of Christianity, what Christianity played in, in our history and all of humanity. The Western Christian people needs to understand what you just referred to in your question. In the medieval times in Europe for centuries, the church, the churches, the Christian institutions were the only one providing healthcare to people. There weren't state healthcare, there weren't private institutions, they were the only one running hospitals or hospices or taking care of the poor. There weren't, you know, social benefit programs and social security back in the medieval times. The Christian churches for centuries were the only ones providing education, which is very, you know, especially uh, striking when there is this absolutely false and incorrect narrative trying to portray Christian uh, churches as the ones that are anti-science. No, no. For about a millennia, Christianity and Christian institutions were the driving force of uh, science and, and human development. The first universities on the world were, you know, church funded and based universities. And we do need to understand that. We also need to understand that currently in the world, the Christian and the faith-based organizations take the larger part of charity activities in the world. I never heard of an atheist or anti-church charity organizations. Wherever I go in Africa, Asia, in, in, in the Middle East, I always find devoted Christian humanitarians and charity organizations. We need to understand that. So uh, I see that we share this mission, you and I, and I hope that we have these Christian voices in the world. Indeed we do. What are you most proud of as State Secretary for the Aid of Persecuted Christians and the Hungry Helps Program? And I use proud in a sanctified sense. What are you most pleased with? Well, I have experienced many uplifting, wonderful moments uh, through my uh, mission that I will remember the rest of my life. But something that was extraordinary only happened to me uh, four weeks ago. And it was uh, during the visit of Pope Francis to Iraq. Now, the Iraqi Christians 
have suffered all those losses that we have already discussed. Not only have they suffered from genocide, but they have also suffered from the same feeling that I referred to when I told you about my encounter with the Nigerian bishop. I heard the same voices from Iraqi Christians that uh, when I asked them about the situation, they told me that when in 2014, ISIS overrun them, they were expecting the Christian countries to come to their help. And it was their greatest horror to see that no one cares about their lives. So they told me that, I remember one encounter with an Assyrian old man. He told me that, you know, I, I lost my home and some relatives had been murdered, but my greatest grief and sadness is that nobody came to our help. I talked to one Iraqi bishop who in an interview passionately and uh, with tears in his eyes told me that the world seems to be more interested about protecting endangered frog species in Australia than protecting the Iraqi Christians. So therefore, you have to see that the greatest pain and grief and the hopelessness of Middle Eastern Christians comes from the fact that they feel abandoned. And it was uh, for them a great relief that the Hungarian government came, but now they have enjoyed a historical turning point with the visit of Pope Francis. They felt that uh, that visit by Pope Francis has given back their dignity, as they are feeling uh, being uh, cared about, and now they have uh, faith, faith in their future. And because they were so grateful to us Hungarians, they invited me to be part of this paper visit. And one program I could join was in Mosul, the ancient uh, town that has been formerly called Nineveh. And Mosul had been completely destroyed by Daesh and the war. And Pope Francis went in the center of Mosul, which is now basically a ghost town, completely ruined, in the center of the former Christian quarter of Mosul. I was present. Uh, it was very deeply uh, moving. The whole interface prayer service of uh, the papal visit in Mosul took place in a square that was surrounded by the ruins of four destroyed ancient churches. So it was very dramatic. And there was a prayer service. And there, after that, for the Christian uh, church leaders there, the former priests and bishops of Mosul, there was an opportunity to uh, talk a few minutes privately or face-to-face -face with the Pope Francis. But because of a sign of their gratitude, before all of them, they asked me to be the first one to talk personally to Pope Francis. So four weeks ago, I was there standing in the middle of Mosul, explaining to the Holy Father that I'm representing Hungarians who, because of our history, have a compassion for the persecuted people. And I was about to tell the Pope what we have managed to achieve in Iraq, but I didn't need to because at that point, the former Bishop of Mosul just stepped in and simply told Pope Francis that, uh, Holy Father, the Hungarians were the ones who helped us to rebuild our towns in Iraq and on the Nineveh Plains. And at that point, the Pope has uh, blessed our mission and 
And this is something I'm not only proud because of the recognition from the Catholic Church leader, but also because at that point I really felt that uh, with the little things we could uh, do, we have actually managed to be a part of the rebirth of the hope for the persecuted Christians. I think it's so incredible to hear that story. And then also to recognize that you are a committed Roman Catholic. Victor Orban is a committed Calvinist. I've heard him in his speeches say over and over again, I'm a Calvinist. And the two of you are working together in solidarity to help persecuted Christians around the world to make a difference while there is yet time. And I, I think that solidarity in itself is a message to the world. It is. It should be a, a message. If I may talk about very personal things, I have many good friends and supporters of our program all around the world, many from the U.S., as I have referred to earlier. And there was a evangelical pastor, friend of mine from uh, California, and one day she called me and she told me that she had a dream the other night about our mission. I don't know if I should believe in such dreams or not, but there is a moral of this story. She told me that in her dream, it has been revealed to her that Hungary will be a birthplace or a starting point of something important, of a revival, a revival for Christianity. Uh, well, that's a very uh, ambitious, a very high expectations to us, but okay, we are trying to fulfill this mission. But she continued. She said that in her dream, she has seen that the devil will see this, and the next move of the devil will be trying to create uh, division lines between the different uh, Christian denominations to weaken this Christian revival. So we'll turn Protestants against Christians, Christians against uh, Orthodox. That will be the next uh, satanic move. And I don't know about the whole uh, transcendent idea. You know, I'm, this is a dream. It could uh, be any meaning. But even if it's a true, you know, revelation uh, or, or not, I think this is uh, very important. And we can only uh, protect Christian civilization, including its communities, if we put aside our personal uh, differences. We have to keep our traditions our theology intact, because that is part of our identity as, as Christian denominations and uh, churches, but for the protection of our whole uh, civilization, and also, more importantly, for protecting our, our suffering uh, brothers and sisters in uh, Christ, we have to uh, come together in solidarity. That is for sure. And I think that's a great place to end this podcast. I have one other question that I've been thinking about asking you as long as I've been talking to you, and that is, how does someone move from studying geoscience, having a terminal degree in the field, it's as good as it gets, to what you're doing now? Well, that is a funny story. <laughs> uh, I was uh, interested uh, in nature uh, from my early childhood, especially in, in volcanoes and uh, geology. Somehow I, I developed an interest in that. So I studied to be a geoscientist. I got my master's degree. And after that, I got my PhD. 
And on that note, I got my PhD in the United States. I lived and studied in Virginia for four years, which was uh, some very uh, happy part of my life. And then I graduated with my PhD at Virginia Tech in 2006. And because of my openness uh, for adventure, in, instead of choosing the comfortable prosperous career and life in, in the US, I, I decided to return to Hungary. And, and, and that was a life-changing moment for me because one week after I came back to um, Hungary, one week after my plane landed, I, I found myself in the middle of the biggest political turmoil of the last decades in Hungary because uh, the, by the way, anti-Christian former communist prime minister of Hungary at that time had a leaked recording of cursing on Hungary and admitting to uh, lying to remain in power. So there was civil protest and unrest against that, but the prime minister wouldn't uh, step down. And then one week after returning to Hungary, I found myself in the middle of a protest while I was being shot at with uh, rubber bullets by policemen. And I seen the desperate state of the Hungarian uh, people and the need for change and the need for this country to regain its national and, and Christian identity. So instead of studying rocks, I figured that the rocks are interesting, but I would want to work with people and, and help my nation and, and my community to be a better place and a more happier and more successful country. So I joined politics at that point. Tristan Osbey, he is the State Secretary for the Aid of Persecuted Christians and the Hungary Helps Program. He is also the Vice President of the Hungarian Christian Democratic People's Party. And as I said in the introduction, he's the only person with a government title that has the term persecuted Christians in it. And that is a wonderful distinction. I am so proud and pleased to have you on Hank Unplugged. Thank you so much for the education you've given our audience all around the world. And I pray that God will richly bless you on a personal level and also richly bless your outreach to persecuted Christians. And that as a result of your example, that what you are doing will spread to other countries around the world. Thank you for uh, this uh, very important discussion. Thank you for your prayers and, and all your uh, support. And God bless you too. Well, thank you. God bless you and God bless Hungary. We always say God bless America, but I would certainly append God bless Hungary to those words. and. May your tribe increase. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in to Hank Unplugged. It is the fact that we are getting so many five-star ratings that continues to expand our listenership around the world. So thank all of you who are connecting with us and talking about this podcast. And again, thank our incredible guests on Hank Unplugged. Tristan Osbey is an example of our mission statement. We are bringing the most interesting, informative, inspirational people on the planet directly to your earbuds. So again, thanks for tuning in to Hank Unplugged. Look forward to seeing you on the next episode soon.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today.